0: Can we compromise? You know, compromise is considered uh, a pretty noble thing in parts of our society, if not the vast majority of our society. In considering whether we should compromise or not, we're going to be looking at some scriptures today regarding God's thinking on compromise. Compromise. First of all, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The writer there, now therefore hearken, O Israel, this is God speaking through Moses, under the statutes and under the judgments which I teach you for to do them, that ye may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. After delivering the law to Israel, God provides this command. Don't add to the word, and don't take away from the word. It's stated again in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. nearly, Nearly word for word. You'd think that by saying it twice, he would kind of get it across. That he's not interested in that from his people. Well, but that's the Old Testament. You know, God's different now. We've got a new covenant. New promises. You know, he's going to forget the sin that we have in our lives. This is a wonderful situation we've got with New Testament Christianity. So this is different now. We we've, we've got a different situation. But do we have a different situation in terms of compromise? Does our God care about that? You know, in the Revelation, in the latter part there, in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 22, it's written, Therefore I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, that's pretty strongly worded. That's pretty strong language from God. We can understand that. But you may hear the argument sometime, well, that's specific to the Revelation. That's specific to that that particular book. All right, you can live with that. From these two references, Deuteronomy there, chapter 4 and chapter 12, from the Revelation, chapter 22, does it look like God is interested in what we have to think about His word, his commands. Does it appear as if God wants us to do anything, to intermingle any thoughts that we might have with his word? With statements like these, it, it looks to me like God does not intend for us to add to. He's not interested in that. But before we answer that question, let's look at something that Jesus said about God's word. When Jesus was praying to God before his crucifixion, there in John 17, in verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, Jesus said. Thy word is truth. So I want to add this question of you. If you add something to the truth, what do you have? Do you know what you have after adding something to the truth? What about if you take anything away from the truth? Do you know what you have if you take something away from the truth of God? And I put to you today that you don't know what you have anymore. Once you add something to or take away something from God's Word, at that point in time, you don't know where you stand. You don't know where you're at anymore. You don't know whether what has been done or what will be done with that information, is going to be acceptable with God. You're outside of His truth. You're outside of His Word. And once you've stepped outside of that, you don't know where you're going to stand. You don't know where you're going to land. Let me ask you this question. When Satan added not to God's Word there in the Garden of Eden, what did they have? Well, it went from the truth of God, you shall surely die, to the lie of Satan, you shall not surely die. The addition of one word made it a lie. It went directly against the word of God. When the Judaizing teachers taught the Galatians that they were to be circumcised in addition to the gospel, it went from the truth of God... To their lie that these people had to be um, circumcised in order to be saved, Paul went on to call it a perversion of the gospel. There in the first part of the Galatian letter, he furthermore pronounced a curse upon any speaker, anybody who would speak these troubling perversions, whether that was an angel or whether it was a man. They were to be accursed. There's a story that occurs in the Old Testament, and a very interesting story to me. I've looked at it from several different standpoints. We're going to look at it from the standpoint of compromise today, because it was something that occurred to me as I read it when preparing for this this, uh, sermon, that we're just seeking compromise sometimes. The Lord came to Abraham nine months before Sarah had Isaac. In Genesis 18, it is written there uh, with all caps, and that's the Tetragrammaton YHWH, Jehovah, the name of God. God visited Abraham and Sarah. They visit for a little while, and then the Lord tells Abraham what is going to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah. The the two of the visitors leave for Sodom, and they're, they're angels apparently, they're messengers from God. They go on to Sodom, and God stays there, with Abraham and talks to him about the things that are about to happen, the judgment that is about to come upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. And it says that Abraham or Abram stayed there before the Lord. He stayed there to listen and to, to plead with God, to intercede with God. We've got that discussion recorded where he tries his best to save Lot and his family. He begins with 50, you remember, he says, you know, if there's just fifty righteous in this city, will you destroy the city? Will you destroy the righteous with the the unrighteous? God says, No, we won't do that. And, you know, then we've got the the situation there where Abraham talks him down. He said, Well, what if there's just 40? What if there's just thirty? What if just twenty? What if just ten? If there's just ten in this whole city will you destroy that whole city and you destroy the ten righteous with the unrighteous? And God said, no. We won't destroy the city if there's just ten righteous. Very interesting conversation there. When they parted company, you know, Lot's substance, his belongings had been so great that the country couldn't hold both him and Abraham. It couldn't support them both. With everything that they had, all of their sheep, all their flocks, all their people. When Abraham heard about the raid, you know, that the kings had come on and that they had raided the cities of the plain and they took all the people captive, the women, and uh, he goes down, he, he arms his trained servants and he goes after them and he, 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 uh, he defeats them in battle and recovers everybody and returns everybody. So he got to see Lot again when he had recovered the plunder and the victims of the raid. And so he knew that Lot had a wife and children at this time at least, if he didn't before they parted company. So perhaps he thought maybe that Lot would have been more successful in retaining the priesthood of his house. Maybe he thought that Lot had had been successful in this, but maybe not successful to the extent that everybody in his household would have stayed true to God, but maybe if there's just ten of them, because that would maybe include all of Lot's immediate family. Maybe he knew about this. Now, when we get to chapter 19, and we're going to turn and read that, and I've got the I've got the uh, verses here on the slides. Along, if you'll allow me, some some images of uh, artists that. Uh, They've worked up and uh, were available to me. You know, he goes into this. It says that there came two angels to Sodom at even. So they arrived there in the evening time. And in this image, you know, we've got it where there's some torches burning. We've got a lot of things going on, uh, fairly bad things. But it's far enough away, you know, that we really can't see unless we really... Uh, zoom in to see the, the things that are happening there. But they're not good things. They're bad things that are going on there in the background. And Lot's at the gate. He's waiting at the gate, and it's, but it's about time to close everything up for the evening. You know, and these two angels come to Sodom, and, and Lot recognizes this situation. Seeing them, he rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Behold now, my lords, Turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet and ye shall rise up early and go uh, go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly and they turned in unto him and entered into his house and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread and they did eat. So here they are at their house. And there's the two girls and the wife, you know, it doesn't show anybody else. We don't have, uh, you know, a list of who all was there on this occasion. But we know from the, later on in the story that at least the wife and the two daughters were there. Now the sons-in-law were there somewhere because he goes and talks to them later on in this story and they just laughed at him when the destruction was about to occur. But before they even lay down of the evening, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them, and and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren... Do not so wickedly. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Now, it's hard to imagine what an ugly mob that must have been. How ugly the situation must have been. We've had some situations in our own country here in the last couple of years where mobs have occurred, and it was quite ugly, the things that occurred. Uh, uh, but I'll, I'll put to you that it hasn't gotten this bad in this country. We haven't seen this happen just yet. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point or not. I pray God we don't. But this was, this was a bad situation. And a bad situation going to turn worse. And they said, the mob said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn. He came here to stay for a little while, and he will needs be a judge. Now he's sitting in the gate, judging our affairs. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. So now they're moving up and they're going to grab Lot and take care of him. But the men put forth their hand, the angels, and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they worried themselves to find the door. Now, you know, the story goes on to to take in the destruction of the cities and everything. But this sets the stage, and it's a pretty ugly setting. It's not very nice. You know, we talk about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and we've got an element in our country today, not a very large element, although it, it sounds like it's a large element. But the homosexual element of our country today says, no, no, Sodom and Gomorrah weren't destroyed because of homosexuality. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of pride and because they were inhospitable to people. All right, it does say that later on in the scriptures. In, the, in the, uh, the prophets, it talks about that they were inhospitable and they were very proud people. Okay, I'll grant you that. But one thing that was a result of that inhospitality was this depravity that we see. And it is depraved conduct. It is not normal conduct. One of these days, I might get thrown in jail for saying stuff like that. But at least today we can still speak the truth from the Word of God. That God says it's an abomination. God says that He doesn't countenance that. He doesn't observe that as proper behavior for men and women. Now, in looking at this, this compromise that is suggested here is one that just kind of makes me shudder. You know, it's a very shocking story already. Users and abusers, evil, inhospitable people, gather at this house to drag these guys outside. And here we've got a guy who's supposed to be a priest of God, who's supposed to have maintained a priest, priesthood of his household. And he goes out and offers a compromise that just makes me shudder to think about it. The word cry here in the Hebrew is the word shriek or scream or outcry. The word great is the Hebrew word for many, myriads. A Hebrew way of saying tens of thousands. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is very great. It's bad news here. And we've got a guy who's supposed to be a priest of God, who's supposed to have maintained the priesthood of his household, go out and call these people brethren and offer a compromise of his daughters, his virgin daughters. This idea is so foreign to me, this concept is so foreign to me, I can't comprehend it. How in the world could this be acceptable? Even in that day and age, even at that time, how could it have been acceptable? for Lot to offer this compromise to these evil people. A very similar happening is recorded in Judges in chapter 19. Some of the Benjamites had done this very same thing and they totally ignored this story that they had set before them. And they went down the same road. And in that one, it happened. The compromise occurred. Nearly all those people ended up getting slaughtered. Well, let me ask you this question. What does compromise mean to you? Does it mean meeting in the middle? Something like that. You give up a little, I give up a little. The definition of this is when an agreement or settlement is reached in a dispute where both sides make concessions. You can be right a little bit and I can be right a little bit and we'll shake hands and both of us will go away feeling good about this. Or both of us will go away feeling bad about this. At least it'll be equal. Compromise also means to be in danger of failure with the definition being to accept standards that are lower than is desirable or advisable. If the structural integrity of a bridge is compromised, then it is in danger of collapsing much sooner than might be expected or under much less loads than apparently designed for. Now, Kaelin's a mechanical engineer, and he can talk to you about some of those things. I had engineers that I worked with in Norman who had to go out and inspect the bridges throughout Norman. And one of the things that weighed on those guys was they were concerned. And when they came in with a bad report on a bridge, they got hit every which way because it was going to cost a lot of money to repair or put in a new bridge. Repair the old bridge or put in a new one. So they got hit pretty hard. And they had to be willing and ready to withstand a lot of abuse and a lot of accusations and a lot of things. And if they would, then the boss would say, all right, if y'all feel that strongly about it, and they would. If they felt that strongly about it, that they were willing to withstand whatever was thrown at them because this bridge was unsafe, then the money would be set aside and be spent to make it safe. The third definition is to be compromised as a person. To be brought to the point of being disreputable or placed in a dangerous position either by oneself or another through indiscretion, foolishness, or recklessness. You know, in all these definitions of compromise, I'm not seeing anything that's friendly to us as Christians. None of these, none of these things are good for us as Christians in compromising truth in compromising truth. None of these things are good. Christianity is a spiritual purism religion. Using these definitions, compromise would be forbidden for us as Christians. We can't leave the truth of God to meet in the middle. We can't leave the truth of God to accept a lower standard than the Bible itself We can't compromise our behaviors with behaviors that are indiscreet or foolish or reckless. Now, I want to illustrate this concept with the idea of travel that Jesus used. A lot of times, you know, I'll be driving down the road and I'm afraid I tend to, or I usually tend to ignore signs until after I get past them. And then I'll say, What did that say? What did that sign say? And Chris, you'll say, "I didn't see the sign. I wasn't looking at the sign." Then we've got to figure out where we're at, or whether we need to take an exit, or you know where we need to turn. Jesus said in Matthew seven, and verses thirteen through fourteen, "Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate." And broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. What did that sign say? Narrow winding road. You're going to see those in Arkansas. I don't know whether we've got any in Oklahoma that warn Narrow, winding road. We see a warning sign, you know, it's the tri- the, uh, the diamond-shaped yellow sign. It's a warning. It's supposed to draw our eye so that we pay attention to it. You know, and just in case you can't read, sometimes there'll be one that'll show it in a picture. We're going from something broad into something narrow. You need to pay attention because We've got a narrow road ahead. Both of these are in mountainous type settings. When we came back through the mountains from going to California when I was pretty young, it really was tough on my granddad. My dad was driving, and he was driving this big RV, and we're on these winding mountain roads like the one that you're seeing turning right there, and granddad was riding up front with dad on the passenger side. And it looked like to him that he was hanging out over space because he couldn't see the edge of the road below him. And it got to be where he would just kind of close his eyes sometimes. Dad would say, you need to close your eyes, Ode. Close your eyes for just a minute, Ode. Or he'd just look at Dad and he'd talk to Dad because he could see the mountainside going up beside Dad. I don't even know what that one says, everything there. I don't, don't follow satellite navigation, I think, is what that stands for. Don't trust the satellite. This is a narrow road with sharp bends. The satellite's liable to tell you you're on the road and you've run off the road. Does that sound familiar? Do you know of anybody that would tell you you're on the road? You're on the road to heaven, friend. And you not be on the road. This road ahead is unfit for certain traffic. There's nowhere to turn around. You're going to keep going? Is it going to be all right? Enter ye in at the straight gate. It's straight and narrow, but it leads to life. That's where you want to go. That's where you want to go. In Luke, it's written this way, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. They're just not prepared to give up what it takes to give up, to go down that narrow road, to get through that straight gate. You know, just a few verses earlier there in Matthew, this is the the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus gives this rule. We like to call it the golden rule. And it's just a few verses earlier than this. If you apply this thought to that golden rule, do to everyone as you desire them to do to you. The word wide here in the Greek, is, is the Greek word meaning very broad. Not just broad, not just wide, but very much so. Very spacious and roomy. But it leads to destruction. It goes to the wrong place. Eternal destruction. You know what's much easier for us to accomplish than the golden rule? Do to others what the way that you would have them do to you. It's much easier for us to be vengeful to covetously take advantage of others, enriching ourselves at their expense, rather than walking according to that rule. It's easier for us to sit back and be reactive. And say, well, you know, he treated me the way he wanted to be treated, so I just busted him in the snoot. You know, that's that's the way we tend to be, is more reactive. Well, it's calling us to be active. You do to others the way you want to be treated. So it's calling us to be active in that role. It puts us in the action seat, the driver's seat, so to speak. We need to be acting that way in the first place and then the reaction he talks about in Matthew chapter 5 in that first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you know, if somebody curses you, you bless them. Somebody treats you bad, you treat them good. So that's how he tells us how to handle reactions. Well, alright. How much deviation can we take and still be on the narrow way? How much deviation will put you off the narrow way? Well, it depends on how far you got to go, right? The longest shot I've ever taken has been out here. We were down there, we were down there, I think, where Matt and Bronwyn live now. We were hunting on that place there uh, to the east of, of the Huff Ranch. And, you know, I was asking the guys, and, and Garland was there, beverage was there, I was asking, how far away are we? How far out is he? I mean, he looked like a dot in my scope, 300 yards and boy, I was, I was trying to get steady. I was aiming across the cab of the truck. And I could see him. He was standing there on that ridge. And I'd breathe and I'd breathe and I'd breathe and I'd breathe. And I'd start to squeeze. And then just a little bit of wind would blow the truck. And I mean, it moved me all over the place. And then I'd breathe and breathe and breathe and start to squeeze. Finally, I squeezed off a shot. And I saw the buck just kind of hunker down just a second. And then he just trotted off. Missed. Now, my crosshairs were, boy, they looked like they were right on him. They looked like they were right on him. And I think it was 330 steps or so across there. It was a long ways. I wasn't used to shooting that far. How far could I be off at 300 yards and miss? A fraction. A fraction. Not. The word not. You know, the further we are away from our objective, and I don't know, I don't know how close you are to heaven. You don't know how close I am. We don't know when we might be called on. You know, if you're, if you're closer, maybe you can stand a little bit of deviation and you won't be off the way before you get to the door. But do you want to take that chance? How much deviation are you willing to gamble with? You see, it's a gamble. Anytime we start to deviate, I don't know. Maybe it's not a gamble at all. Maybe you know that once you deviate, it's not going to have a good outcome. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 1, Peter writes there, There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22, God speaking through Moses talks about the presumptuous prophet. Someone who presumes to speak for God. And God states that they shouldn't listen, the Israelites shouldn't listen to these men if what they said doesn't come to pass. Well, that's a, pretty good, that, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Well, what about for us in the New Testament? How should we react? John writes to Christians to try the spirits in 1 John 4 and verse 1. To determine if the speaker is false or true. And he gave them a test there because they had people who were going around saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, didn't they? That Jesus, they denied that Jesus was the Son of God. And he says, any spirit that says that Jesus is the Son of God, that's, that's of God, and if he says it's not, then it's not of God. Okay, That's a pretty good test. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. We can go with that. But we don't have just a ton of people running around today saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh or that Jesus is not the Son of God, and yet they would deviate from the gospel. They would put a word here or there, especially not. They like to put the word not in there. How do we know? Well, we need to compare what these people have to say with Scripture. If what they have to say doesn't line up with Scripture, it goes against it, we don't need to listen to them. We don't need to listen to them. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, Peter writes there, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, he's talking about Paul here, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, W-R-E-S-T, that's wrestle, twist, as they, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. What about the people that follow them? Jesus said in Matthew 15, and he, he talks about quite a bit there in the first 14 verses. We're not going to take the whole time to read that. But he says there in that last verse, verse 14, Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. It's not going to be a good situation for those that are blind, that are leading people, who are also blind. To compromise on principles of Scripture, to add to or take away from Scripture, to teach His doctrine, the doctrine of God, the commandments of men, as if that's what God's Word says. Those are things that are going to get us where we're going to answer to that from God. And the people who follow us, the people who listen to us, will also deviate from the way of God. Their souls will also be lost. We cannot compromise on these principles. One thing Jesus does talk about there in Matthew 15, in the first few verses there, is tradition. Can you compromise on your traditions? If they're just traditions, you can compromise on traditions. There can be good traditions, there can be bad traditions. There can be traditions that we keep just for the sake of doing it the same. This is the way we've always done it. We can compromise on those things. We can do things a little bit different as long as we don't go against the scriptures. But we cannot compromise on the scriptures. We cannot compromise on the truth of God. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ Wheeler Area.